0: It didn't listen to me. It walked out of the thicket. It turned around and looked at me. They looked up and in this tree, there was a monkey man. And the monkey man jumped down out of the tree and started running away. And suddenly, they're right in front of the car. He slams on the brakes stop and you're skidding because at like quite, you know, and um, gravelly. And for literally for about a second and a half, they just stood there because they don't know where to go. And you tell them they're panicking, they're you know, like, ripping, their, their, their face is like twitching.
1: bigfoot society this is your host jeremiah byron every week i talk to different people in the cryptozoology field you never know who's going to be on next week if you'd like to sponsor the show head on over to patreon.com forward slash the bigfoot society in this episode of bigfoot society i talked to new friend dr russ jones about his search for bigfoot in the west virginia appalachia area all right, Big Society, we have another episode for you. Thanks for coming back. And I've got with me Dr. Russ Jones from the great state of West Virginia. How are you doing, Russ? Good, my friend. How are you doing this evening? Doing great. It's a great night in uh, in Iowa, and it's, uh, it's a little windy, but it's doing well here. Uh, let's take a few minutes to to uh share your your bio that you were nice enough to send over so people know uh what we're all about tonight so i'm going to go ahead go through that so uh dr russ jones lives in uh, uh hurricane west virginia and also at his farm in athens ohio he has a bachelor's degree in science and a doctor's degree in chiropractic chiropractic Excuse me, sir. I even go to a chiropractor. I can't even say the word. Oh, my goodness. Anyways. You're from Iowa. You have to. That's what we all <laughs> to school, man.
0: We yeah. all went to Iowa. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, that's, that's good to right. know. Chiropractic was pre- invented in
1: Davenport, Iowa in 1895. Wow. I'm, I'm learning so much right now. Before the interview, I'm going to tell my chiropractor she's going to be so proud of me. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about, the, about that in a minute. So uh, he's a certified master naturalist. He's been interested in Bigfoot his entire life and actively doing research the last 15 years, a BFRO organizer, and, of course, the author of two award-winning books, Tracking the Stone Man, and more recently, the Appalachian Bigfoot, uh, which is number one on Amazon for 17 weeks. And uh, to top it all off, uh, new podcast coming out starting next week. Wow, what great timing. Yes. Uh, what great timing on the Untold Radio Network from Doug Highcheck. Uh, the podcast is called wide open. We'll talk to that. Talk about that later in the uh, interview, okay. but, um, yeah, go Iowa. Who, who, yeah, I you, no idea. Wow. Yeah, what city are you in in Iowa? Uh, I'm, uh, just, uh, West of, uh, Des Moines. So okay. I go into Des Moines to, to do all, all this stuff, but, um, yeah, uh, I'll totally talk to my chiropractor and do this. Like Tell I know you I met,
0: uh, a Palmer, a Palmer is like the Harvard for chiropractors and it's in Davenport, Okay. Iowa.
1: So, yeah, that's uh, the one. A lot of the that's great Kairos
0: or Palmer graduates,
1: dude. So is mine. So I, I'm Thank I'm you. loving it. All right, we just got about half the li- listenership to click off, and there, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> guys, guys, don't go anywhere. Um, so Dr. Russ, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, looks like, uh, let's see, uh, Scott is saying, Hey, loving Dr. Russ's hat, Ohio State. There you go, that's totally. Right, good totally. Bucks. totally. <laughs> Uh, but let's, let's, uh, let's start talking about, uh, some Bigfoot here. Um, so I'm curious, you're talking in your bio that you have, uh, you know, you got like 15 years of experience, but you've been interested in Bigfoot your entire life. Was there something that like clicked it off for you,
0: uh, back in the day where you're like, wow, what, what's this all about? You know, I was lucky enough to be raised in one of those, uh, outdoorsy families in Southeast Ohio. Um. My family was well-known. Everybody tried to buy our coon dogs, our rabbit dogs. Oh, wow. People would drive from a long ways away to see how many bucks we had hanging on the first day of deer season. And uh, I can remember that I was only six years old. I shot my first rabbit with a BB gun the day of Thanksgiving. And all the men standing around watching me do it, you know, as a rite of passage in my family. Yeah, We all hunted ginseng. We all trapped all of us from very young age and, um, Southeast Ohio, you know, is very rural, uh, very remote. And Vinton County is where I spent the great majority of my time, which is still Ohio's most remote County with only one stoplight. Wow.
1: Oh yeah. So I had
0: a couple of experiences there and, um, you know, one, the first one was uh, new year's day, New Year's Eve, we got about four inches of snow. New Year's Day was a beautiful sunny day, but it was really cold. And I was rabbit hunting and came along a hillside and there was a cave up above that you just couldn't see and you didn't really know it was there. And I found, of course, keep in mind, I knew nothing about Bigfoot at this point. This is the early 70s. I found barefoot human footprints. I thought that it was like some type of druggie or a vagrant or whatever it happens to be. And, um, you know, I went up to the cave to look around. I thought there would be like a fire or there would be clothes or something. There was just nothing like that. And that gentleman and I talked for a while about it, but then we just went on. You know, we didn't have any idea what it was. And then uh, later that year, about three miles from there, I was at this beaver dam that, you know, it was just back in these hollow. There was no road to it or path to it, but we had found it you know, like I remember that I had set turtle hooks back there and for the people who don't know turtle hooks, you know, you have this big hook and you put chicken gizzard raw on it and you throw it in a Creek or a stream or a pond and the, um, snapping turtles will eat it. And if you're not there soon enough, then it goes all the way down their throat and they just digest it with their acid and they're gone. And, uh, so I had sent some traps back there over the years and, I was back there with an uncle that was always really snaky. So we were both armed, both had pistols on us. And I heard something coming down from the other side of the dam. There was some woods over there, it was brushy, and I couldn't really see in there, but I glanced over and saw my uncle was watching too. And, you know, I just figured it was going to be, you know, a deer or something, but something started shaking the bushes and started screaming very monkey like. And and I remember asking him, uncle, you know, you know, what is it? What do you think it is? And he said, just look for a tree. You can get to it It has to come across the water to get to us. You know, it's close, but you know, there's water in between us. And, um, and it went on for about a minute and it stopped. And it's funny because, you know, we just kept fishing, you know, we were all outdoorsmen. We were raised that there was nothing in the woods that, um, you know, wasn't more afraid of us than we were of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, Later that year, I saw uh, Leonard Nimoy's in search of, and it was in search of Bigfoot, one of the episodes, I got suspicious. And then two more times while I was in high school, uh, I'd found footprints once at that same place. And once when I was squirrel hunting and I was very interested in it and I followed it my whole life. I read all the books, but you know, you're going to undergrad and, you know, I have this own baseball scholarship. So you're busy there. And I was in Indiana for four years for the undergrad. And then I went to Iowa and you're out there five years or whatever to get through uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, when I came back, um, I moved to West Virginia. And, you know, I live outside Charleston. And one of the things that appealed to me is, you know, I could, uh, like at one point, I lived on a farm here. I owned 230 acres. And I was 10 minutes from the state capital. You know, and I had bears on my land. I had anything that you can imagine there. And there's not very many states where you can do that. Mm. And um, I had read Jeff Meldrum's book, and it was the year that he got uh, pu- first published. I don't even remember what year that was, but uh, I was in Ohio for the Bigfoot conference. I, I didn't know anybody. I wasn't involved in Bigfoot World. I just went up there to hear Meldrum speak, and it wasn't even really a large conference at that point. And I talked to him a little bit afterwards. And then I saw in a the BFRO they had an expedition, it was in Ohio. And I thought, well, i just go and If they're weird, I'll leave. And if they're not, you know, I'll, you know, who knows? And so I went, I've met, uh, on that expedition I met two of my best friends, Matt Moneymaker was there. Matt used to go to all the expeditions and Matt and I just really hit it off. And I started doing all the reports in Ohio and West Virginia for the group. And that was, I don't know, probably 15 years ago. Um, 10, I don't remember exactly how many years ago. And, um, You know, it's ironic now how much it's turned. You know, I've spoke at that big Ohio conference, I think, three different times. And, you know, I've written now two books on the subject. And you just wouldn't believe that something that, um, you know, for whatever reason, it just I just could never get away from it. I knew that when I was young, I drove my grandpa crazy. You know, we were always coon hunting. We're in the most remote locations. I'm always flipping on my little light to look at all the tracks, you know, is that, a, what is that? That's a fox. Is it a gray fox or red fox? It's a gray mm-hmm. fox. How can you tell the difference between the foxes? And I'm sure I drove him crazy with it, but you know, I was very consumed with it. And I can remember about that same time there was uh, a famous sighting in Ohio, same County, right where I hunt. And uh, this family had apparently shot at a Bigfoot. They claim they did and that they had wounded one and, Around 100 people came from Columbus down to circle this one area of this park. And it's ironic because I spend a lot of my time still in that same park. Right now, I probably have 12 cameras in that park, Uh, you know, because I have 40-something game cameras, but I have 12 just in that one park. And, um, you know, and that's where I am now. I am consumed with Bigfoot. I literally do something each and every day, whether it's, Working. I'm working on the second edition of the first book now, Okay. Uh, which the first one was called Tracking the Stone Man. And Joe B. Lart was the publisher um, out in Oregon. And then the second book I did was called The Appalachian Bigfoot and uh, Into the Fray Publishing did that for me. Mm-hmm. And that one was one that just got released in December. And then it was uh, 17 weeks. It's been number one on Amazon and mm, um, it's so done cool. really well. Oh really. man. So everybody they're big and interested in Bigfoot until they like meet somebody like me. Then <laughs> they're like, they're not that interested in Bigfoot.
1: <laughs> I could see like one of your patients coming in with a Bigfoot shirt and you're like, dude, don't even get me started. It's yeah. like, you know, you have no idea who you're dealing with. Um, follow up question, a few follow up questions from that. So um, when you first, when you heard, the uh the monkey type noise or the the creature that was shaking the the bush way back yeah did did that noise uh did it sound like any other um monkeys that you've heard of uh that you've heard
0: before was it similar to any other monkey noises or well you know i remember thinking instantly at that time i mean i think all of us you know had seen you know tv shows or things like that or uh marlon perkins mutual of omaha was probably pretty popular back then Mm. And I remember us talking my uncle and I later that, you know, it sounded like a monkey to us. I really didn't really have any idea what it could be. Um, It was curious, but, Mm -hmm. you know, interestingly, I'm still, you know, I'm, I still get called to these places like that same place that uh, that's happened to me probably twice a year. I'll walk in there before sunset. It's about a mile back up this hollow and I'll just sit in there till about dark listening And, you know, in general, you know, a lot of times we talk about uh, the halibut rule that an area that is similar to when it was previously will have about the same animals it did previously. And they say that because halibut fish are like that. You know, they're usually in the same places and you can go back generationally and find them. So this place is about the same as it always is. And so they're probably still around there some but I'm just want to go back there because, you know, you want to have this experience again. And, um, I, I have not had another experience back there at all. Um, sadly at that particular place, but, you know, I do spend a lot of time just in that whole general area, you know, and I literally bought my farm in Ohio because it had joined a park that had a history of Bigfoot sightings. Oh, wow. and it was only about 10 minutes away from an area with a lot of sightings, you know? So I was um, just set up just to be able to do that, to go after it. Oh man, that, that is, that's intense right there.
1: Another follow-up question. And this is just, this is more for me, but when you were, so you were out in Iowa, you went to Palmer then. Yes. Okay. When you're out here, Did you, did you look into any Bigfoot stuff when you're out
0: here or it was in the books the whole time? In the books. Okay. Um, You know, because you're carrying, when you're in college, if you carry 16 hours, everybody's like, I'm carrying 16 hours. You think you're really busy. But when you're in doctor school, you carry 30 hours. Yeah. And it's all graduate level classes, you know, instead of being 100, 200, 500 level, like you might have an undergrad, it's thousand level. Um, So I was working the whole time. You know, I came from a middle class family. My dad worked for the power company and I was a janitor when I was in Iowa and I lived in this office building and took care of that each day. And so I really didn't have uh, time. I'm I'm sure that if I had a break or something, I was probably watching a Bigfoot show because that's just how it is.
1: (laughs) Cause that was like what probably early was that
0: early eighties, mid eighties. That was uh, I graduated from Palmer in 91. Okay. This is my 31st year of practice. Um, so okay. that, you know, that was late eighties.
1: Okay. Yeah. So that would have been like 10 years after there was a big, big foot flap in Jefferson County in Iowa, uh, like some really weird stuff that happened in the Eastern part of the state. But anyways, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll, that's my, that's my Iowa spiel for the episode, but, so, Doc uh, Russ, when people ask you, like, okay, you know, they find out you're into Bigfoot, yeah, and they're like, all right, what's this Bigfoot thing? Like, what's the, what's what do you what do you tell them?
0: Like, what do you think in that that Bigfoot is? So, literally, everybody knows that I'm into Bigfoot, and it's mm-hmm. shocking if a patient in my office and I have it's a large office. There's two younger guys that practice in there with me. And so there's, you know, 160 or so a day that are in the office. And I would say that the great majority of them know or have bought the book there and oh, asking oh, me yeah. questions about it. And invariably, at least each week, one of the other guys will say, Hey, there's somebody who wants to talk to you for a second and somebody will have a story for me. Um, but in terms of what Bigfoot is, I mean, I think that, you know, nationally, it's about a third of the population believes in Bigfoot, but I think, It's so deceiving to say that because if you're in the Pacific Northwest, if you're in Appalachia, it's very, very high. The people Mm -hmm. in Miami, Chicago, New York, they certainly have opinions about Bigfoot, but they don't spend any time in the woods. And frankly, people are just living their lives, man. I mean, they have kids, they have a job, they have a family, they have all this stuff. And Bigfoot's not even on their radar. You know, they don't keep up with it. I mean, the times that you even talk or debate with anthropologists or scientists, maybe some of the the radio podcasts or radio interview shows that you did. I did one earlier this year from Toronto and one from Louisiana, and they literally don't really know anything about it. And so the objections they have to it are the objections that have been solved in the last 20 years ago. Is there enough food for Bigfoot? Oh, Why wow. haven't it been discovered? Why isn't there bones? You know, things like that, that. All of us would commonly give, you know, like I used to give an hour lecture just on why there isn't bones. You know, it's, it's a complicated thing and a complex thing for those people to understand. But in terms of what it can be, I mean, I think that the things, the two things that make the most sense and are easy, the most easy would be the Gigantopithecus, because, you know, whatever is here and whatever is Bigfoot came across the land bridge 10 to 20,000 years ago like man did, like all the other animals did, and came into North America. You know, they have the most sightings in the Pacific Northwest. That makes sense because that's closest to the land bridge. Um, You know, Gigantopithecus was right in that area. He's the right size. It's the right time. You know, but there's some problems with it. We're not really sure if if he was bipedal. We're not sure that he was an omnivore. Um, A lot of people like Paranthropus, But the problem with Paranthropus is the time's not exactly right. They're a little farther away. They're in Africa. So, you know, they have to go all the way then. And there's really not any evidence that they have. And they look like a Bigfoot, but they're a little shorter than Bigfoot. So, you know, something probably from that lineage. You know, if you remember that we only have about 3% fossils of about 3% of the animals that have existed. So, you know, there's a very good chance we don't really have. Whatever Bigfoot would be. And then, if you consider that most paleontologists would believe that on average it may take around 10,000 years for something to fossilize. And so we may not even really have any fossils here, you know, if something's came over in the last 10 to 20,000 years. And, you know, many of the places where Bigfoot is, the soil is not conducive to fossils. And, you know, if you think about the Indian mounds that we have in the East, Many of the Indian mounds, I don't remember the exact percent, but I want to say it was around 70%. When they dig it up, there's nothing there. You know, all the bones have dissolved. I
1: remember talking to Cliff Berrickman about, um, yeah, he's, he's. Uh, oh, well, when I last talked to him, he, he was into the uh, Paranthropus. Um, still is. Okay, still. Uh, I was like, oh, he might be different. Yeah. Now. I haven't talked to him in a few years, but um, yeah. okay, good to know. Good to know. But it's, it's all very interesting and you can get so like, I mean, I've talked to Emily from forest floor about, about things like that before it's just, it's, you can really get into it. But um, what do you say to people when um, they're like, let's say, you know, uh, why are you even looking for Bigfoot in West Virginia? You know, everyone knows he's in, in Oregon and Washington. Like what,
0: Yeah. I mean, so when you think about it, I think that most of us grew up thinking that, and I can remember even before I started this, that I thought that there was probably something around. I didn't really know what it was. If it existed, it was probably in the Pacific Northwest, but it doesn't take very long when you do this all the time. I remember the very first witness I had, it was a state trooper from Raleigh County, which is about an hour from me here. And you know, he likes to hunt ginseng. So him and his wife are riding their four-wheeler and they're on a ride away and they're in the spring. So, you know, you can only harvest ginseng in the fall. Mm. So he's looking for spots where it may be good or maybe he can see some plants or something. And he pulled off of the right away onto some, you know, just path or whatever and was putting along. And he glanced and saw a fireburn stump, he thought, and kept putting along. And he glanced back and he stopped and he said, have you ever seen one? And I said, no. And he said, they're the size of a sheet of plywood. It's hard to imagine something that large being in the woods. He said, I'm not sure. He said, there's a lot of missing people. I'm not saying they do it, but I'm just saying they're so large. And, um, you know, so he was wearing a weapon, but he started hitting reverse or getting it, trying to get in reverse on it. You know, he's only about 30 yards from it. Um, So he's trying to put in his reverse. His wife says, what are you doing? He said, look, 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 look. And she just started screaming, oh, my God, no. Oh, my God, no. And it was interesting because eventually they moved out of the country and into a town. His wife got counseling for post-traumatic stress. She would hear things for years still in their yard in the neighborhood and think that Bigfoot was in their neighborhood. And I took him back to that place not long after that with another state trooper. And the guy that had the sighting was just crying, and they both had their weapons out the whole time. He was chain smoking, and I thought, "Gosh, man, you know this this dude saw something, you know." And so, the course of the year, you know, like in Ohio, we may get a couple reports a week. West Virginia may get like one every couple weeks or something like that. Most of them are misidentifications or. Um, there's just not something you can do something with, you know, like say before finding Bigfoot came along, I don't even yeah. think that the public knew that Bigfoot made sounds, but you know, here comes finding Bigfoot and they're screaming and they're knocking on trees and all this other stuff. Well, now people start hearing things in the woods and whether they are, or there aren't, you know, it's hard to say because a lot of animals in the woods make weird sounds like the owls could be horrifying, You know, foxes make weird sounds. Martins make weird sounds. Coyotes make a wide variety of sounds. And so, you know, people start calling in. I've been in the woods my whole life and, you know, I don't know what this is and blah, blah, blah. But the point is that every year. In Ohio, in West Virginia, Kentucky, the states that I would monitor closely each and every day, a couple of times I'm, you know, watching. There is an exceptional report. Exceptional meaning it's a policeman. It's a doctor. It's, you know, a lot of times it's a hunter with college degrees. It's um, guides that have a clear daytime sighting that's close and can't be, you know, they're not mistaken. I mean, that's one of the things that I always, you know, in the book, I was talking about at this time as I was just going over a chapter on eyewitness accounts and, what kind of evidence we have. And it's, you know, when you talk to the lawyers and you talk to policemen, they'll say, well, you know, eyewitnesses are notoriously incorrect or whatever it happens to be. But, you know, they're incorrect about how tall something is or how much something weighs. But I don't think that people have a hard time identifying whether something's human or not human. You know, so the standard in order for some type of identification like that is surely a lot less. And so, you know, I think that we have to weight the evidence. maybe it's not as heavy as some other type of uh, of evidence we might have, but certainly it's still you know relevant
1: oh, totally. I mean, it's like when it comes down to it you you talk to or for me, you know, I haven't gotten the the chance to talk to an actual like an eye an eye, like talk to a eyewitness after they just like saw Bigfoot. But, yeah. you know, I, I've seen like, you know, uh video of, of a eyewitness talking about it. It's like you can just you can tell in their eyes they saw something. you like, you can't fake the look that's in the eyes. It, that's how I go ho-
0: go by it anyways. But I've done um lie detector tests on people. I used oh, to yeah? do that on really good witnesses, you know, just to, you know, if it was really a compelling story. Like I remember one time, you know, I was. I had interviewed this guy, he was the, he worked at NASA. He was the youngest sheriff in the state of Florida, but he was from West Virginia. And when he retired, he moved back. And uh, one of the friends of his family was a timber guy. And so he would ride just to have something to do Mm. with this timber guy out of the woods, and they were hauling logs and running alongside this Creek in this remote area. And he looked over and he saw a Bigfoot and it was on a knee with using its hands to drink water And he just turned and looked at, you know, the timber guy and he said, did you see that? And he said, yeah. And he said, what did you see? And he said, I saw a Bigfoot down on one knee drinking water. And he's like, yeah, you know, that's exactly what I saw. You know, another time just outside of Charleston, um, of course, everywhere in West Virginia is very remote, very steep, isolated, rugged terrain, even right down to the capital city. But just outside Charleston, there was a gentleman that had a siding, And when we were through, you know, he told me his name. He said, you might recognize me. You know, I was, I was a mayor or he wasn't a mayor. He was on the uh, city council and he was the chief of police. He's like, I I don't want you to tell anybody who I am, but you know, I want you to take this serious because I'm telling you, you know, who I am. And so you get a lot of cases like that, that, you know, like Action Jackson out of Yellowstone, you know, he just retired. He goes through now telling, you know, on podcasts, this Bigfoot story. I mean, here's the most celebrated park ranger in the United States that did the backcountry of Yellowstone, you know, 60,000 miles or something he rode back there to protect it. He had a Bigfoot sighting during the day. Are you going to tell Action Jackson that he did not have a Bigfoot sighting? You don't think he's capable of recognizing an animal during the daytime that, you know, you know, and there's, there's lots of stories like that. You know, there's, um doctors i think it was the head of ucla's medical department that had a bigfoot sighting while he was hog hunting and i remember a couple years ago there were rangers or i guess you would call them like maybe biologists that uh that worked in minnesota that had a sighting then came out after they retired and of course hughan and sullivan were the famous biologists in the pacific northwest they had several sightings and uh they were the ones that uh postured the Hugh and Sullivan rule, which is that you have to be in the woods for about 200 hours in order to find poop or have some type of encounter or find evidence. And for a long time, I would keep my notes on exactly how long I was in the woods. And I had found for years that they were pretty accurate. I was getting 200 hours about every six weeks or so. And, um, but now I used to be really bad about ambulance chasing Um, like I just got, somebody sent me out of Ohio, really not far from my farm. Uh, they had, um, some fingerprints that they had measured. They were in this remote location, an old abandoned deer hunting camp. That's only active a couple of times a year. And there was these large handprints on it and, you know, they'd had some things happen there or whatever, but, you know, I, I've done this so many years and been to so many witnesses when I get there, the Bigfoot's not going to be there. Um, you know, I, I can't say that if something didn't happen like, you know, in the last couple of days that I probably wouldn't go if it was in a couple hours, but it just doesn't do us any good to chase all these things down. I mean, I had cameras for six hours that I was constantly visiting, you know, with all these different theories I was putting forth with cameras and ways to try to get something on the trap. And what I have found over the years is I'm much better served. Like right now I concentrate on three different areas and I'm, you know, you need to find an area that you can go to every week or two, or it's just not worth going. And so that's where I spend all my time. And I try to get out, you know, at least two days, but a lot of times it's three or four days that I'll get out each week. Um, You know, usually like this week I was out Tuesday and, you know, you're up really early and I was in the woods till about noon and I covered an awesome area that looked great. I just didn't experience anything. So that's some
1: that's some really good advice there. I I think where it's, you know, you gotta have a an area where you can visit uh about every week, you know, have constant you're going to the same area. Um you know, let's let's imagine, you know, you're taking a, a new uh Bigfooter or you know, you're talking to someone uh that's that wants to get out into uh looking for Bigfoot and researching, doing some field work. Do you have any uh, advice for, for listeners that would, you know, that would be wanting to actually go out in the field and and not just be, you know, reading a book in uh, their chair about it?
0: So what I would do is I would try to find an area that has a historical uh, account. So, you know, so let's just choose like Iowa and Ohio would be easy, right? Because even though Iowa has, some Bigfoot sightings going on. Steve Moon, I know, is out there and does a lot of stuff in Iowa. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not that many places for Bigfoot in Iowa. And so, you know, that's you're going to go to the same places. It's always going to be a river valley. I remember the place uh, with the cliffs in northeastern Iowa. I can't think of the name of that uh, place. Yeah. I went there camping, but um, it's escaping me. So I wouldn't go to places where everybody else is going, for instance, in Ohio. And maybe the most famous place in the whole country is the Salt Fork State Park. People are there literally every day hitting trees and screaming. I'm certain that Bigfoot probably is still in the park. I mean, I don't know if they're like um, turkey hunters will know what I'm talking about when when birds get call shy. You always have these guys that before turkey season, they can't resist going out and calling these birds. I don't know why, because like you can't shoot them. And you're just messing up somebody else's hunting, but they do it. And so now in Ohio, many times turkeys won't gobble and come in. They just come in quietly because they've learned. And so I think that sometimes in some places, you know, man is educated or I wonder if he's educated Bigfoot that, you know, about the first couple of times there was a wood knock or somebody yelled and a Bigfoot came in. There was a human there. I mean, you know. There's a reason why, you know, we don't have you know, a body at this point, probably. So So, I guess I kind of, I didn't answer your question completely there. I would look for an area that had uh, a history in the general area. Then I would choose some other place that was relatively close and go to that place instead. So like say in Ohio, instead of going to Salt Fork, I may go to Wills Creek, which is Mm -hmm. relatively close to there. a large area that not that many people are going to go to because frankly, a group like the BFRO, um, if you have a report at Salt Fork, like it'll get documented in the files, but no one's really going to mess with it very much because, you know, you're suspicious. You know, I was there when Finding Bigfoot did their first episode in Ohio at Salt Fork and we put people on different areas of the park to make sure that no one came in there when the TV show was doing their stuff, Wow! you know, so you just don't want to be in that type of area. And then another thing I think that is something to consider is when people go out at night, you're doing it to do it with your friends or you're doing it to have an experience, but you're really not doing it to get evidence. Um, there's some great thermal footage that's, you know, out across the country, but frankly, the scientists don't care about it. They're not interested in it. They don't find it compelling. And so, you know, when someone's getting into Bigfoot or you just want to spend time with your buddies, I think it's a good thing to go out and do that, but we need to get more evidence. And so I think more of us need to spend more time during the daytime and off trail. And like I was at the Ohio conference this year and, you know, and that's the biggest Bigfoot conference. There's, you know, 6,000 people there that weekend and I, I noticed that um, when you would get to the lodge, you know, there's all these dumpsters because you got all these people. And so, I mean, you know, there's Bigfoot, you know, they, they want them dumpsters. They want those trash cans and places like that. And um, so these buzzards were circling and it was like not very far, maybe several hundred yards over the hill. And I thought, you know, here you have the largest group of Bigfoot people in the whole world here. But how many of us walked down there to see what was dead? you know, nobody really does. I mean, uh, you know, so when I think when we're out in the woods where, you know, we're trying to find these remote locations. And if you see the buzzard, you see something else, you know, we just have to look and we have to hope that one of us gets lucky. But I mean, I think it's important for people to keep in mind. So, you know, how many Bigfoot may there be? Of course, nobody really has an idea for all of North America. But I think that if I say that the range is between 4,000 and 20,000. Most people would kind of agree. And so then if they live about as long as most primates, they would live, you know, around 40 or 50 years. Hmm. And so then you would have around a 5% attrition rate. So if you divide those numbers out and you find out in a state like Ohio or West Virginia, in the course of a year, you may have maybe three, four, five dead Bigfoot in the whole state. So, You know, when you start looking at it like that, you know, the odds of the odds are greater that you can find a Bigfoot than a dead Bigfoot.
1: Going back to the answer you gave was was very good about the, um, you know, how how are you going to find the area? Right. Yeah. Follow up to that. For let's say there's listeners where they're like, well, that's great, but how do I find if an area is is historical or has historical Bigfoot? Would you recommend BFRO, or what are you recommending that they check out to find out what is the historical area?
0: So how I do it personally is I may use the BFRO database, you know, to find an area where there's a clump of sightings. I mean, in most states, if you have like three sightings or so, I mean, that might be a clump, you know, because there's not so many sightings that there's this enormous number. And I'll bet that, you know, most people would have a general idea of where they think, you know, that they could be like in their certain states, you know, like Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, all of us in Tennessee, all of us would kind of know what area that we would expect a Bigfoot to be. One of the things that I talk about is in the first book, I talk about a perch and a perch is an area where, A Bigfoot will come and they'll wait until dark, then leave that area and they'll go get trash or a dumpster or it's a place where fishermen cut up their, you know, fish parts and they leave them lay or whatever it happens to be. And so it reminds me of when people are hunting large bucks, bucks are staying back during the day. They're staying in places where people don't go. It's thick. It's farther back. And then when it gets dusk, they start creeping forward. Toward where the food is and where the deer are. And they'll stay in an area still back. It's called a staging area. And then they'll come out, of course, at dark. And I imagine Bigfoot being very similar to that. And so when they get close to where they can watch the area, you know, I call that a perch. And many times, if you look on a map um, at different parks, you'll find areas in the campgrounds, uh, around the lake, or around the reservoir that there is a remote road that goes there and it dead ends. And you can just drive there and see whether or not there's a trash can there. There's a lot of people that are there during the night and they leave. But one of the things that has to have happened is there has to be remote access to some type of greater woods. Like it can't just be a little pocket. It has to be an area where they feel safe coming to it. And if something happens, they feel safe getting out of there. And then when you get there and you, if you look around, I know Cliff Berrickman would always say, where's the sniper? He'd say, oh, there's a sniper here watching whatever. I call it a perch and I have for years, you know, cause I just imagine a bird sitting on a perch watching, you know, what everybody's doing. And commonly I have found, um, I remember one time I did a magazine article and the guy had brought a map and, uh, so he wanted me to take him to the woods. I didn't know that we were going to the woods. He's like, I want you to pick two places on here where you think one of those perches might be where they would be active and we can go look. And so, I picked two spots. And when we went to the park, the one was in the campground and it was closed. And the other one was this other place that had a couple um, shelter houses and some big trash cans there. But the reason why I chose it was because it was relatively remote and had that remote section of woods going back to it. And so then when him and I got there, I said, well, where would you, you know, if you were somebody or something wanting to watch everybody here, where would you be? And he pointed that spot and I was like, yeah, me too. Let's walk up there and look. And, you know, we found, you know, all these rocks stacked up and, you know, a golf ball sitting there. And, you know, so we could tell that it wasn't fresh, but, you know, I'm like, you just take a note of it and you come back every now and then and see if you think it's fresh. And then if it's fresh, you know, you might find something or maybe you could put a game camera out and see if you could get some evidence that way. You know, we all know that they like to come in campgrounds. But if you look at most campgrounds, it's not helpful to say, um, like for instance, I'm going camping in a couple of weeks to see some of my best friends. And so I'm going in Ohio, one of the few times I'll be out at night. And so I'm going to make sure that I'm up against in a park or whatever, but I want the map of the campground, right? Because I wouldn't just have them assign me a random spot in the campground because they wouldn't be interested in all the spots. But if you can show me the side of the campground, which has the most safe passage out to a remote section of woods, you know, I'm going to want to be on that spot or that side to pre- give me a best chance at it. You know, nothing's a guarantee, but you know, a lot of people now tell me after reading that first book that they, they go to places and they'll find, you know, like a lot of times, you know, you'll find a big tree there and you'll go up there and you'll find rocks stacked up under the tree, or you'll find where something stood there behind and the ground's pretty compressed and, maybe a bunch of the little twigs are broken off where something's just stood there and piddled around and you can almost just turn around and look and find like, okay, there's another big tree. And you can just imagine how it came down through the woods. Um, But I don't make it to to sound easy because clearly there's not, it's a rare creature. They're not everywhere. Um, They're not easy to find and we don't have enough data. So, you know, that's one of the big things you know, probably at first what I was known for was the Olympic project had at one time a lot of cameras out. And then as the years went by, I'm probably the person with the most cameras out with 40 something that I managed at any one time. And, you know, there's some studies that came out over the years, University of Georgia, that it was hard to get an alpha male coyote. Um, China had some animals they wanted to document in their rainforest and you know they did studies on the american cameras to see which was the best which was the quietest which was this and that and so what we were finding over the years and what i believe is that animals hear these cameras you know even the most quiet ones are around 30 decibels children can hear them i can't personally hear them and you know it's interesting like there was a book the great soul of something about Siberian tigers. I've been looking at my bookshelf cause I'd read it here a while back and, you know, up till this one gentleman, we didn't even have, we had one picture of a, of a Siberian tiger, you know, and they're the size of a long, as long as a car and we had one picture. And so this guy stayed essentially in a tomb for six months at a time. And once a month, somebody would bring him supplies, quietly bring it in, during the day when the tigers wouldn't be up and about and then leave. I mean, he used the bathroom in this little tomb, everything else. And those were the first pictures that we ever got of that. Well, that same guy, you know, he had out, I want to say 32 game cameras, 30 of them were destroyed all from behind, you know? So a lot of these animals, uh, the alpha male coyotes just avoid them. You know, the tigers, they destroy them. You know, there was a study just a couple of years ago where they put an obvious game camera in front of different types of primates of higher apes and watched, you know, how they reacted to them. And some of them were curious, some were afraid of them, some were mad at them, but they all reacted to them, you know, one way or another. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, and I talk about this a lot, I think that one of the things that we have to do or we should be interested in is, of course, I want, want Bigfoot to walk in front of my cameras, right? And I mean, you know, there's shots that I have that are not good enough for public consumption that people would look at and say, "We, well, that could be something I kind of see what you mean and blah, blah, blah. But I think that when we concentrate our cameras in a certain area, we get to know the wildlife that's in that area. So you may have 20 deer that visit your camera every day. And every single day or two, you're going to see these same animals come through and you learn about the wildlife in your area. You'll learn, all oh, OK, there's two bobcats here. There's around 20 deer there. You know, there's one nice buck. And of course, you can guesstimate the buck doe ratios, whether it's a, a healthy, um, you know, amount of deer. or. or and um, but what you can see is at some point on certain cameras, you will have all the animals will disappear or their visits will be cut in you know, big numbers. So something's disrupting the animals that you're used to seeing in the normal pattern that's in your woods. Now, if you're in the Pacific Northwest or someplace like that, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure that, you know, they have mountain lions there, you know, they're probably here in small numbers, but, you know, not enough that they're disrupting the animals. So on the East coast, when you're seeing that, you know, I make note of that, that, you know, in September, the second week, all my animals were messed up. And so about that time every year, I would probably move more cameras into that particular area. And when I go hiking, I would make sure I was in that area there hoping that I get lucky.
1: The information you provided about the perch and looking at the area and in- Okay, where's the area where the creature would be looking at everything, like a sniper? Yeah. That's game changing for me. I hope a lot of people take that information, and I think that's going to change the game for a lot of people. I mean, yeah, we'll we'll talk off camera about some stuff, but um, yeah, I mean, that's like that's a game changer for me, dude. Um, in the last few minutes, so I have two things I want to cover in the last few minutes. Uh, one is. You're in West Virginia, so I'm, yeah. I have to ask you: Are you looking for Mothman too? No, I'm just I'm big, big, okay. Bigfoot. All right, all right. So yeah,
0: no, no, those, no, no goats or nothing.
1: No Flatwoods monster. No Grafton no. monster. No. Okay, no. fair enough. I mean, they have pictures of it, and I'm like, I didn't even look like a Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, she- no sheep squatch or anything.
0: No, no. no. Yeah, gosh. I mean, you know, I know that it's funny because I know that everybody I hear from. Those guys are so nice. The guys from, you know, that show or whatever. But oh,
1: Mountain Monsters. Yeah, you know, and they're yeah, all
0: yeah, yeah. here, and yeah, yeah. they shoot every episode on the same farm. It's you know, about thirty minutes here from me. Oh wow, but they just kill me off because you know they're having fun and it, it's not meant to be taken serious. But when you live in the same state as them, you know, what I mean, like they make my life a little harder. But I know that some of the guys that live out west love them and they think they're like the greatest guys. And I'm like. I'm sure they're cool and everything, but they don't live where you live, you know. So if,
1: it's an interesting you know, like, way to think about it. Yeah, for, for sure. Like, like yeah.
0: the BFO thing, man. They'll have people that will write in and say the mountain Monsters guys really have a lot of luck. Maybe you should gang up with them, and you know, like people don't realize sometimes that you know they're, you know, they're just having fun with a TV show or whatever.
1: Yeah, uh, you never know. someday I'll, I'll I'll talk to one of those dudes. We'll see, but. Uh also I want to spend a few minutes. Tell me about your your podcast is starting next week. Wide yeah. open. What's the deal with that? And like, you know, why sh- you know we're excited to hear about like you know what we can expect from that from you.
0: Okay. So Doug Highcheck, which I'm do you know Doug? Are you friends with Doug? Yeah, I interviewed him. He's a I'll great dude you, from you. Minnesota. Yeah, Monster. Yeah, Quest we dude. all kind of know yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah. yeah and yeah. uh Doug's a great guy. And of course he was a producer of monster question, you know, a big yep. TV show. And so he has an umbrella of seven podcasts that are getting ready to start next week, different topics. I know one is the one historical books and you know, not all of them are Bigfoot, you know, they're on different things. Brad Kennan, which is a super sharp guy that I've been friends with for years. Him and I are going to do it together and we're going to do a lot of Bigfoot stuff, but you know, I'm really interested in uh, like personally anti-aging, and so we're going to do some podcasts related to anti-aging stuff about how people can, you know, you don't have to be a million bucks to change your life and live longer and be healthy and how you could do it and a few things that different doctors from across the nation would tell you what to do and how to do it. And, um, you know, Brad's doing research right now on electric vehicles. We're going to do an episode on that. Um, we're going to, you know, just do some different things I, you know, I want to try. I want to, Talk about COVID some, you know, like it's controversial and, you know, it's hard to get good information. I mean, it's like no one even knows who to trust. You know, tonight before I was the one I was watching the news and um, our government had a commercial on and it just wasn't true. What was being said? I was like, gosh, you know, you feel so bad for the patients, man. I mean, they're in there and, you know, my experience has been right now, people are tired of it. So they're not following the information. They're not following the science that's out there. Now they're just sick of it. They just want to move on. And I can't say I blame them, but you know, I I have a suspicion, you know, this probably isn't the first time this is going to happen. We're probably going to deal with some more things coming up. And, uh, you know, so I'm interested in that kind of stuff. You know, we're calling it wide open. And um, I know the first episode, we're going to talk and kind of interview each other about some of the things that we're interested in. And, Um, I'm going to try to have one, some of the witnesses. I just took a great report. Um, it was from like 30 years ago, but it's one guy seeing the same animal for five years in a row. And, um, you know, so it's real, there's a lot of intriguing things are out there just trying to have something different. And then, you know, maybe just trying to have some of the same guys, but finding out, um, you know, some different questions from him. When I said that, uh, Tim Holleran's new book came out this week, uh, The Bigwood Influencers. And um, I'm interested in that because, you know, I just finished. When I read my chapter, I thought that I sounded long-winded. And I didn't like that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I I tried to listen to every podcast that Jeff Meldrum does. You know, I became friends with Jeff. He encouraged me to write the first book. And, you know, so I always appreciate him and admire him. And, you know, and so I wanted to read his chapter because, you know, you, you know, you want to keep up on everything. I mean, there is not a lot of us, I mean, that are legitimately doing this all the time. And very often there may be a hundred of us that are very active in the country or in North America. And uh, so those people that do that were under a lot of scrutiny, you know, so I think that, you know, we can't all be an anthropologist and argue the merits on whether or not, you know, it's Gigantopithecus or whatever it happens to be, but certainly we should be well-versed enough to be able to make a reasonable argument at some of the, um you know, different things about the Bigfoot phenomena.
1: It sounds like a pretty awesome podcast. I mean, it's going to not only have some solid Bigfoot stuff, but it's also, you know, it's going to expand your mind a little bit. So I like that. It's definitely going to be, as you titled it, wide open. So yeah, I'm wide open. That's pretty cool. Well, Doctor uh, Russ, uh, Russ, do you mind spending a few minutes how uh, people can pick up, you know, your books, keep up to date with what you're doing, all that good stuff before we uh, call it a night?
0: Yeah. So they can find me Russ Jones on Facebook. They can find me um, the Bigfoot Doc on Twitter. On Twitter, I post just Bigfoot stuff. Uh, pictures and videos of what I'm in the woods and what I'm finding and showing that things like that and artist sketches of uh, the different people that I interview. I am, uh, I have a website called the It has access to the books, which are both on Amazon. And I, about two years ago I decided not to speak as much. So I'm really not making those rounds any longer I probably have done 30 or 40 podcasts this year. So I'm very active on the podcast front podcast front. And honestly, I feel like between the podcast and the books, like, you know, people have heard everything I had to say and they're probably sick of listening to me. And, uh, and I wish there was a way that I could tell some of the stories I always tell better. And I wish, you know, you can make people experience them the way that you feel kind of like you said, you know, when you see those witnesses, you know, what is it that would change somebody's life? And that like me, here I am 57 years old and still consumed literally every day with the Bigfoot mystery, talking to witnesses every day. Um, I mean, if I'm sitting in front of the TV, there's a very good chance that there is a map on my lap and a magnifying glass I'm looking at, you know, because, you know, I want to know, um, you know, for instance, like there's this one road and it's in this wilderness area. And, um, You know, in West Virginia, we have this one area called the Monongah Hill National Forest. It's 1.1 million acres. And we have five wilderness areas inside of it. Uh, One of them called Cranberry is the largest wilderness area in the eastern United States. And um, I took a report from a nurse and it was a very good daytime sighting. And there's this mountain that people come over and it's kind of steep when they come over. So everybody's coasting. And I guess they're a little quiet in their car. And. She said that she thought it was a bear because she sees bears all the time. And it's a black bear sanctuary there. And it was climbing up a hill, started to slip. And then it reached up and grabbed a branch and turned and looked at her. And, you know, obviously it was clear then what it was. And so I enjoyed talking to her. It was great. And, you know, I made my notes and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Well, then like a year later, I get a report, a doctor and his wife during the day. Same road, same area, you know, between the top of the mountain and between this one drive is about two and a half miles. And it was right in the middle, just like this other ladies, you know, then it was killing me. You know, I was on my maps all the time. Why is it, you know, it's going through there. And uh, I had went up there and dropped, I think I had three cameras out for over a year and I never got anything. But that was one of the first times I started to notice that the wildlife disappearing on the camera. And it got me thinking about concentrating the research more in the same area, being out more a day, you know, just those type of things. Um, You know, one of the other things that I talk about a lot too, in the first book is, you know, when you find a Bigfoot, my first, uh, like you have a sighting, my first thing to try to figure out is, you know, why are they there? Where are they traveling to? Where are they coming from? And, you know, when an animal's large, you have to consider, I call it treat foods. Like, hmm. I don't think it's helpful when people say Bigfoot's eating deer or whatever, because in Appalachia and really in Iowa, if there's not deer in a field, then like, that's kind of weird. I mean, they're almost in all yep. the fields eating. So yep. it's not, I'm sure the Bigfoot eats deer and it has to, to get through the winters, but it's not helpful to say this is where the deer population is, that they're just everywhere. But what I want to know is what are the, I call them treat foods, the foods that aren't readily available all year, Mm. but seasonally will be available, you know, and that's what I'm looking for in those particular areas. If there's a siding in September, you know, what is it that would be in that area? Is there an orchard nearby? Is there, you know, old Mr. Brian, you know, he's afraid of everybody on his land and he, you know, and he doesn't let anybody there and he has this huge garden or whatever it happens to be. But, I mean, I think that it's not enough for us just to have the sighting or to document the sighting. that we have to try to figure out the pieces that go with it. And in time, you know, maybe we can accumulate enough evidence. I always have my Bigfoot calendar where I'm documenting all the different things. When my game cameras change or when, you know, I get a sighting report or, you know, maybe some audio comes in. Dr. Kenny Brown's in Ohio and sometimes we'll say, hey, I got some I heard a wood knock in this area and I'll put it on my calendar. So, if we can figure out, you know, hey, they're usually in this general area here in September, then, you know, we have a better chance of going in there and maybe, you know, actually having something happen that, you know, we can get evidence from. That's, uh, man.
1: So, guys, if you haven't picked up Dr. Russ's books yet, you got to, because, I mean, the information he's throwing out during uh, this podcast is, is blowing my mind so definitely pick up a copy of dr russ's uh books but thank you again so much for for coming on and i uh, can't wait to see what happens in the future with wide open we'll definitely be checking that out but thanks, thanks again for coming on dr russ thank you the views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of bigfoot society Any content provided by our guests are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone. Thank you. If you'd like to hear your ad before or after the program, please contact Bigfoot Society at bigfootsociety at gmail.com.